You're listening to Retail Refined, a market scale podcast with me, Melissa Gonzalez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Retail Refined, a market scale podcast with your host, me, Melissa Gonzalez. Today, we have Jonathan Silver, founder and CEO of Affinity Solutions with us. Affinity is the authoritative source of truth for news outlets, not-for-profits, research firms, and businesses in the U.S., and the only source for purchase insights that can be analyzed by demographic, geographic, lifestyle segment, and political affiliation. Jonathan's vision for Affinity is to transform data insights into experiences that improve people's lives. He is a lifelong entrepreneur and graduate of Wharton and University of Pennsylvania School of Engineering. Jonathan, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. I very much appreciate you having me. So I gave a super high level introduction to Affinity Solutions, but I'd love for you to tell our audience before we dive in any further more about about the company and what your day-to-day is like as the founder and CEO. Sure. Well, maybe a little bit of background because our journey has been... um, uh, a little bit unexpected as we've uh, gone through the last 15 years since we've been in business. Um, I'm the founder and CEO, and the original vision of the company was to go to banks that issue credit and debit cards and provide them a new kind of marketing program that rewarded their cardholders when they shopped at certain merchants. And we ran that program. And in order to run it, the banks send us from the beginning and send us today all the data that happens on those debit and credit cards, which we then receive and we make sure that people that are supposed to get rewarded are rewarded properly, we're the system of record for that. And over the course of the, of the years that we launched that, we ended up with thousands and thousands of banks sending us what today is about 90 million consumers worth of data every single day on those debit and credit cards to run those programs. About five or six years ago, um, we started getting a lot of interest among the retailers we were serving to use the data in other ways. They were like, hey, it's great that we can be part of these loyalty programs, but we'd really want to leverage this data to help us make better decisions, you know, where to open stores. If I can, if I get this, this credit card data where I can see the purchase activity of consumers outside my own four walls, and of course now with COVID, it's become extremely important, I can make better decisions around, you know, where I can open stores, how to allocate their capital, our capital across, you know, e-commerce versus brick and mortar stores. Should I open up more stores? Um, how should I think about investing in certain geographies because there's more uh, more up, upside or more headroom available? So we began to convince our banks um, and, and payment companies that we work with to give us the rights of use to create a set of applications that provide insights around share wallet and around what, what customers are doing outside their own four walls and their own websites. And then the ability to take action on those insights to actually go out and create personalized marketing um, to reach customers that are more likely to buy with them because they're buying at competitors and they should be buying with them um, and to measure the results of their marketing efforts. So we created this suite of solutions um, starting about six years ago around insights to action, we call it. Insights, better personalization and measurement. And then the last stage of our, of our journey up until this point is about a year ago. And it, it's interesting that it overlapped with the COVID period um, we started getting a lot of interest among partners, not just to buy our applications around personalization and insights, but to create their own. And so now Affinity is launching uh, what we call Panorama, which is a data platform that will let other companies build their own applications around insights, around targeting, around measurement, around personalization. Um, and that's the journey. That's where the journey is today, uh, where we're 
enabling, you know, we're the purchase insights partner for all the major, I shouldn't say all, but many of the major consulting firms like Deloitte, Accenture, Bain, and McKinsey. Uh, we are the purchase intelligence partner for the large marketing service providers like, you know, Epsilon and Axiom and companies like that. And then, of course, ultimately, it's the retailers that we serve either directly or through those different partners. So day in the life for me is thinking of all the ways that we can leverage our data um, and, um, and technology to help retailers build deeper relationships with consumers so they can retain and grow their market share and become healthier companies. Well, that's thank you for taking me through that journey, us through that journey, I should say. Um, you sit in a very interesting spot with a tremendous amount of data 90 million daily. So I really want to dig into some of the insights, um, you know, and what you're seeing. So, but I guess I'll start with, there's definitely, you know, been so much conversation around data for years. And I think that there's uh, been talk about, you know, we know we need to have, we need to acquire data, but I think the missing gap's been the strategy around that. So uh, can you tell us a little bit more about how you approach a data acquisition strategy and, and what you do as you work with your clients to analyze those insights and give them, you know, recommendations back? Sure. Well, I think it starts with kind of a macro view. You know, during uh, COVID, we launched something called Data for Good, which is uh, an umbrella initiative where we began to give our data, you know, our aggregated data and insights to not-for-profits, scientists, academics, researchers, so it can help them with government policymaking and also generally understand what's going on in the economy. And our, our insights are covered very often in the Wall Street Journal and Forbes and Lots of other publications, including uh, the Wall Street Journal this this morning, on page A two, uh, and we got <laughs> because there we were looking at how are people behaving when they get their stimulus checks, mm -hmm. um, and there's some really fascinating uh, insights that came from our data, uh, working with a group out of Harvard, uh, where the data demonstrated a very different way that lower income people are spending their stimulus checks because they really need the money, and right. they're going out and sp spending it like. Uh, you know, burning a hole through their pocket, whereas, you know, people that are spending over, I think, $75,000 as a married couple um, are banking it or they're paying down debt. So there's a, the first step is sort of getting a lay of the land, understanding what's going on in the economy uh, for the benefit of the number of stakeholders, uh, including the retailers. The second is um, how we make our data available to retail, whether it's directly or through partners, is, um, it, it, you know, having data isn't the final answer. It's, being able to, to make sense of the data. And so we provide our data through APIs, through insights data feeds. Um, so companies like McDonald's can see that, oh, Popeye's is stealing share of stomach, we call it in the restaurant space, in the QSR space, uh, where uh, Popeye's introduced their chicken sandwich in 2019. And McDonald's had been looking uh, exclusively at you know, Burger King and Wendy's as their primary competition. But what they found was that a lot of their customers were going to Popeye's because they introduced this chicken sandwich. So other than you know one decision, which is they introduced their own chicken sandwich, uh, we're able to help McDonald's not only understand it, not only have that impact their product strategy, uh, their, their uh, choice of menu selections, but we're also able to create derivative products models that allow them to target or personalize their ads to go after people that are likely going to Popeye's. And if it's particularly among millennials and it's particularly in Chicago and LA, we can, we can create the, the context for them to reach those people mm -hmm. so they can recover the lost market share and actually help to, um, you know, to bring more of that market share that they didn't have, even have before to McDonald's. That's extremely valuable. 
Um, what are the trends you're seeing? I mean, everybody's question now is within retail, what are the trends and the behaviors going to be when it comes to in-store and physical retail? What are some of the trends you're seeing from a data perspective of how consumers are shifting? Um, and what are some, I mean, that's broad, I guess. What are some of the recommendations you're making? Do you want to pick a particular vertical? We can, we can start that way. Yeah. Well, first, I think it's important because uh, when we talk about our data, it's not just the credit and debit card data, which is obviously the foundation. It's our ticket to the dance, 90 million people. Uh, but one of the characteristics of the data is that it's matchable. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, while we get name and address of people and we get email address because we have to get it to run those loyalty programs that I mentioned earlier, we anonymize it, we hash it. In doing so, it's matchable so we can then append lots of demographic data, behavioral data, lifestyle data, um, other data sets that talk about what they're buying, not just at what store, but it's CVS and they're buying you know, Pampers or they're buying diapers, how they traversed, how they... How they um, travel to get to the store, what other stores they may have visited before they visited the one they made a physical purchase. So I just wanted to mention that it's not only about the purchase data, it's all these other connected insights. Um, and I'll come back to privacy and consumer permission later. That being the case, what we've seen, particularly over the last year, no big surprise, is that there's been a massive you know, switch to online purchases. And you know, that that really deserves a little more nuance. It's it's sure. a lot of it's sort of hybrid, you know, buy online, pick up in store, mm-hmm. curbside pickup, drive through home delivery, um, and it makes some of the analysis we do sort of interesting because we'll see a transaction that was at McDonald's using a PayPal payment device delivered through DoorDash. And so we're picking up all that intelligence, the restaurant or the retailer, the delivery mechanism, and the uh, the payment mechanism all together. And those insights are really valuable. Um, so there's obviously this, this significant switch to e-commerce and online and all those different formats. Um, and, you know, when the when the pandemic first started, um, you know, they tried it once. It's a novelty. They do it a second time. It's interesting. They do it three times or more. It becomes a habit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with, um, you know, almost a year of this pandemic um, coming up in March, um, you know, there's going to be, I think, a lot of persistent behavior that will go well beyond COVID, even as people start returning to stores and restaurants, um, because people have gotten used to it. It's actually a pretty cool experience to have stuff delivered to your home. Um, so that's one of the obvious trends. Um, we're seeing that in our data every day. Do you see, um, as far as those trends, any surprises? You know, I think in, in the past, there was so many, much conversation that oh, people would only order had certain types of items, or they would only do a shoppable showroom for certain types of items. And I feel like a lot of those barriers are getting broken down um, because at the end of the, you know, people are just, if that's the means to the end, then I'll do it. It doesn't matter the category, but are you seeing some trends in that aspect that certain sectors are seeing a bigger adoption of either online or flexible fulfillment than others? Absolutely. And, you know, I think the way, the way I would think about it is there are certain categories, but there are also certain retailers within the categories that have done a really fantastic job. I think the first wave of kind of uh, what distinguished success versus failure was this was, you know, some companies changing their entire delivery systems, uh, along with their marketing messages to show empathy with consumers, and obviously their concern for safety. So you saw saw things just staying in the restaurant category for a moment. You know, Domino's obviously had home delivery before, so did Papa John's in the pizza category, but they went further and they they made their entire, you know, home delivery contactless, uh, end to end, Mm -hmm. so no human hands touched pizza, um, and which, which is not the case before. And then you could order the food, 
you know, to the front door, the side door, the back door. There's a lot of personalization attached to that. So there are certain brands that did an outstanding job of understanding and empathizing with consumers. That was kind of the first wave. The second wave is, I think, where we're at now, which is more about personalization um, in convenience, right? So making those online delivery easier. And to your question, you know, you, you start to look at um, clothing that people are getting a little more comfortable doing that. I think before COVID, there was less of a comfort level. People like to touch and try on clothing for obvious reasons. Uh, I would still say that's still more in-store. I think other categories that haven't quite made the transition are home improvement, uh, where companies like Home Depot, you know, people are having to fix their homes up. They're spending a lot more time at home, home furnishings, those types of things. People are just more comfortable going in and taking the risk, putting their masks on and going to, you know, experience it in person and uh, buying tools that way, et cetera. Uh, but we're certainly seeing grocery adoption, massive adoption for online purchase. I think that's yeah. probably uh, true for many of your listeners. Um, so, you know, that that for sure needs versus wants, right? The, um, you know, uh, drug and grocery, uh, you know, home delivery of restaurant, of food, I think all those things have become uh, massive spikes in online uh, purchases and home delivery. One major trend I've been looking at a lot as well is the adoption of contactless payment, um, the usage of QR code, finally, um, and the opportunity it opens up for brands and retailers um, in the in-store environment. You're literally inside your consumer's device while they're in your store. And you, you know, for, for, from your lens, I think as a company it gives you so much opportunity for more enhanced data collection, but I also think it opens up opportunities for personalization in the moment with a consumer standing in your store in their device. I mean, are there are there insights that you can share around that? Absolutely. Yeah, I think there, there's a, a couple of things worth mentioning. One is, uh, yes, contactless payments. People are less likely to want to hand a piece of plastic to someone. Um, and to the extent that, you know, Google introduced their Google uh, Pay 2.0 uh, in fourth quarter of last year, and obviously, Apple Pay is continuing to innovate in their in their environment. Amazon is looking to innovate there. PayPal. Um, it's not just about that; it's contactless. It's contactless, uh, but part of an experience that enhances commerce. And that's to your point about personalization. So we're seeing a lot of trends there. You know, Google Pay in their um, last release, they're looking to do things like you know, when you go into a grocery store, think of it as an app within an app. You've got your grocery app that knows everything about what you bought if you're tied into their loyalty program. And then you've got Google Pay. Um, so the app within an app is that Google Pay and the loyalty app of the supermarket connect. And you start getting recommendations about products that are suited for you based on your, per your past purchase history and other things, of course, that Google knows about you. Um, so I think that's the trend is this kind of highly personalized experiences. And I talk a lot about you know, as we look a little farther ahead, and I'm not, I'm not talking about five or 10 years, I'm talking about, you know, two years. Mm -hmm. um, I was at a conference, uh, the what used to be called the uh, Consumer Electronics Show, it's called CES now down mm -hmm. in Vegas before the world ended in January mm -hmm. of uh, 2020. And the first keynote was the CEO of Delta Airlines, a guy named Ed Bastian, talking about all the cool things that Delta was doing at the time and um, bringing different partners on the stage. And one of the things that he talked about the future of travel, and they brought a partner on, was something they were just introducing or about to introduce in Los Angeles Airport, LAX, and Detroit. So this is not like a future thing. This is like now, where you and I, you know, I, I could be standing in front of um, a billboard at at the airport, 
And I'm only seeing things on the billboard that pertain to me. What gate I have to be at, uh, what time I have to be at the gate, I should say, what gate I have to be at, what um, you know, dishes that the restaurant down the terminal has that align with my personal preferences, what the weather's like in the destination city. And you, Melissa, are standing right next to me looking at the same billboard. You see nothing to do with me. You only see things related to you. We're not wearing special glasses. We're literally standing in front of the same billboard and seeing two different things. That's a technology called parallel reality. It's an extension of virtual reality, augmented reality, and mixed reality. Uh, but even though travel was put on pause, that technology, which, as I said, was about to be launched in those two airports, is going to be a reality in retail. And with the, with the advent of data, it's not, it's not just about data, which is about better decision making. It's about data to be used to create highly personalized experiences in physical stores, certainly online, but in physical stores mm -hmm. um, to, to respond to consumers' demand for personalization, to compete with Amazon and others. Um, so, you know, imagine walking into a store and having it become the Melissa Gonzalez store. Imagine the recommendations that are made, the products that are recommended um, that are specific to you when you walk into Home Depot. That's where we're heading. Doesn't mean you have to physically walk into that store. You can have that experience at home uh, with IoT type uh, uh, technologies. But what we're really talking about is the, is the intersection of personalization technologies using data with consumer permission and these other technologies like mixed reality that act on that to create these incredible experiences. And I think we're just at the beginning, the tip of the iceberg of a renaissance of hyper-personalization across a variety of domains. I mean, you blew my mind with the parallel reality. <laughs> it reminds me almost, I don't know if you remember years ago that, that, uh, photo that went viral over Instagram and you didn't know if you were looking at the dress, was it blue and gold or was it like black and white? And we're all staring at the same picture, but we saw different things. Um, but so you, you said we would touch back on it because this does go back to everybody's question around privacy. How do you truly deliver these hyper personalized experiences, which depend upon really knowing somebody, but also honoring privacy and data and do you think consumers are becoming more and more open to that because they believe brands and retailers are going to deliver something that makes it worth it? Yeah, great question. Let me let me start with an overall view of where things are going, and then I'll talk about how we, Affinity, are are enabling it. Um, so where we where we think things are going, as I said a moment ago, is this wave of hyper personalization. And the way I think about it is like, kind of like a, an, you know, a next generation app store. So imagine a friend of yours saying, hey, Melissa, you got to check out this incredible experience. When you go into Home Depot, they recognize you by name. The store changes to become the Melissa Gonzalez store. It's an incredible experience. And you're like, wow, I got to sign up. My friend recommended. And you go to the Next Generation App Store. And when you sign up for the app, you claim your data. Right? And we, have a, we talk about a concept of personal data cloud um, where, you know, you know how like a small business will claim their business on Google? You know, that's a kind of a thing that small businesses do. They claim their place and their business. This will be a consumer claiming their data, right? And, and what I mean by that is all your data, your credit, your purchase data, which is obviously very sensitive, including credit card and the SKU, the SKU data that you generate when you go shop at CVS or, mm -hmm. or uh, Safeway or whatever, um, your location data, there's all this digital data out there. Given the trend towards consumer control of data, as well as regulatory changes and this scenario where there's tremendous value from claiming your data, you will claim it and you'll claim it once. And once you claim it, you can then take advantage of other personalization type applications um, across domains. And I believe personalization is not just going to be in the commercial domain, domain, 
where you'll experience these incredibly personalized, really cool one-to-one experiences when you shop, but we think it's going to extend to medicine and health, personalized medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll take a whole new um, wave of innovation uh, that will apply to medicine as well as education. I think within three to, well, maybe maybe four to five years, the educational system of today will be will look antiquated. Um, it'll mm-hmm. look at individuals, young people, and children's aptitudes and interests. So I believe all of this is going to be across a variety of domains. But just staying with commerce for a moment, um, that's how I see it playing out. Um, and so where we play, uh, Affinity, is we've got this platform called Panorama. Uh, we call it that because it's the environment to give a full view of a consumer's activity, but always with consumer permission. Mm-hmm. And that, that's why I, lo- I wanted to describe the experience of you going in and signing up for the app, because you're the one pro- permissioning your data. You're the one provisioning your data to experience something that is very transparently presented to you. Um, and that that's the only way. Um, there's different paradigms across banking, open banking, where you can direct your bank to send your bank data to a third-party application. Same idea. So the personal data cloud is a structure within Panorama that has consent management tools and privacy controls built in. Um, we have we have another related concept called personal operating system, mm. where the, per, the personal data cloud, you know how operating systems usually think of yeah. it as associated with a device, right? Like Windows is the operating system for your laptop and iOS is the operating system for your iPhone and Amazon, I think has their own for AWS. Think about it differently. Think about it as the Melissa Gonzalez operating system where um, you have your personal data cloud. And then right above that, you have privacy controls and consent management tools. And right above that, you have machine learning and artificial intelligence that can effectively personalize your intersection or interaction with the world, whether it's commerce or other domains. This is very mission impossible, this conversation. It's, <laughs> it's, but I, I, I mean, I know it's all possible, um, but the way in which you break it down, it's, um, it feel, it's very real. Um, I see the benefits for it, for sure. Um, I think that, um, I think that we all expect brands and retailers to know us on a deeper level than ever before, um, but it's a fine balance for sure. Um, you know, you you spoke during our conversation already about so many brands that have been doing interesting things, Delta, and then you, you, you even brought, you know, you brought up pizza. Um, but on the retail standpoint, you know, are there any, you know, kind of successful case studies where you were approached with a challenge um, and your data insights were able to glean opportunities that uh, a retailer was able to unlock and incorporate into their in-store experience? Oh yeah, lots of examples. I, one thing I do want to give, uh, just emphasize, this Mission Impossible thing. What's that? What's the song? That that experience is all about value exchange, right? It's it's the consumer making the decision. This data is provisioned for this experience and not mm-hmm. that, and only what's really needed. So I just want to keep emphasizing, mm-hmm. it's all about what's valuable to us. And we have a vision at Affinity, even though our mission is very a little more short-term around helping businesses build deeper relationships with consumers so they can retain and grow their market share and become healthier. And But our vision, which is longer term, is using data to improve people's lives. And I'm really, I'm, I'm 100% convinced that we have a deep conviction that within a, you know, within a few years, it's just, you're going to see this renaissance of experiences and applications that use data that will make uh, people's lives better and better. So back to your question about, you know, insights that cause retailers to take a left turn or do something different. Uh, we had one very large supermarket chain, there's a bunch of examples, but where 
you know, kind of like when I was describing where McDonald's didn't think about their competition as Popeye's. They thought about it as Burger King and Wendy's because it was burger restaurants. And they realized, well, wait a minute, it's still the same stomach. I'm competing for the share of stomach. So I'm seeing from Affinity's data that those customers are going to Popeye's. So that changed their behavior. Similarly, there was a very large supermarket chain, which I'm not going to name, um, but they rethought not just that their competition was, let's say, you know, Kroger or Publix, um, but that their competition was other QSRs. And so they started rethinking using our data, using the insights from our data and the, we call it insights to action. The actions that are implied by those insights um, led them to rethink their whole merchandising trend. Um, You know, build, you know, in some cases, depending on the location, because we believe all marketing is local and what you do in one location doesn't necessarily mean you should do it in another, even within the same brand, within the same chain, um, is to, in some cases, build, you know, food service areas, obviously, and, you know, kind of present uh, different experiences in store that attract people that would otherwise go to, you know, a, a restaurant and order at home delivery. That's a co- that's competition for a grocer. Um, we saw that not only among QSRs, but we also saw for that same uh, grocery client uh, that Target and some of the super mass merchants um, were also becoming more and more uh, competitors of theirs versus traditional supermarkets. That's one example. Um, I'd say, you know, when we start kind of moving, a lot of our work is with intermediaries and we, uh, we, we actually are able to measure the results of marketing campaigns by connecting the ad impressions from, in this case, it was a program we did for um, a large uh, retail chain where we were able to see in real time, they actually didn't have a very well-built loyalty program. So they were really relying on us as kind of a proxy for their own data. And when they ran this, these connected TV or addressable TV campaigns where you can target TV ads to different people, we were able to show them how much, not only how much sales got generated by connecting the ad impressions back to our credit debit card data, but also who lost when they gained. Um, was it Publix that lost market share in Florida when they increased or was it Kroger? Um, and you could start seeing which competitors are more resilient uh, because at the end of the day, you know, probably people aren't going to buy more food than they would otherwise. Probably you're going to take share away from somebody else. Um, so that was really kind of interesting um, is seeing that play out in near real time because a lot of our ability to use data to connect to these marketing programs, um, you know, when you can see it happening over the course of each week of their campaign, you can then, they can then course correct to mm-hmm. those adver- advertising channels and creatives and offers and audiences and programmatic that um, are working better than others. Are there any um, uh, means of communication that have emerged from this that were new and unexpected as well? For example, I find text messaging as a form of marketing has become um, much more common amongst brands and consumers than ever before. Yeah, it's, that's a good question. I, you know, text messaging surprisingly has seen greater adoption, you know, I probably wouldn't have predicted that, um, you know, I always thought it was so intrusive, but you know, like, you're not gonna give my, give my phone number for you to text me, but it's, I guess it's easier than going in your email. You know, I, I, I guess so. Right. And, and I think also, you know, apps, right. I would have predicted, and, and this is still certainly the case. There's still been a very significant adoption of apps. And now there's another trend, which is super apps, which mm-hmm. I think this is more of a forward looking view is now I've got all these apps is there some front door that some super app can provide that helps me navigate across the apps that I need in any given moment. But I think apps and then the push notifications that apps provide, uh, you know, has been a significant lift in there. But to your point, 
text messaging, old-fashioned text messaging has seen for sure greater adoption. Um, I think, you know, voice recognition. I think, you mm-hmm. know, Alexa, Alexa, Siri, more and more of that's going to be the case. I mean, even businesses, like we're providing our insights, just saying to your to your business, Alexa, hey, Alexa, you know, tell me who, tell me how my market share shifted last week. <laughs> right. Um, and Alexa, what should I do about that? Right. At some point, you know, people start to lose some of their own <laughs> desire to solve their own problems. Like I do when I get in a car and I rely on ways to get me from here to there. But, you know, I think voice recognition interfaces are going to become more and more and have seen adoption. It's going to become massive uh, as we look forward. No, yeah. And we only have a few minutes left, but it, it, and it could be probably a whole other conversation. But if we talk at this high level where we're speaking, all of it should be um, a way to inform too how, I mean, stores are going to have to be better than ever. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? If you think about the fluidity of us as consumers, how we are behaving from channel to channel, switching over more seamlessly, we're talking to a robot, we're texting a salesperson, you know, that fluidity isn't going to stop when you walk in the front door of a store. So we're going to have to figure out how we keep that fluidity happening, even in the four walls. Yes. But that's where I think the whole, the whole personalization experience is going to be everything. I think some of those channels will converge because, you know, you'll, effectively choose your preferred channel by your actions and then the communication not just not just the content of the communication but the channel through which it's communicated will become part of that personalization and um, increasingly it'll be more virtual um, and you'll you know you'll have control over the degree to which you you want it to be you know you want your data to be accessed uh, the degree to which you want your experience to be personalized but I am uh, I'm convinced that that's what's going to happen uh, but you may make a great point about the fluidity because there's so many different ways to engage. Um, and, you know, you've got to decide what works for you. But, you know, you also need to be flexible because you, you never know, you know, uh, the, the store you love may communicate to you in a way that you have been accustomed to. And you want to be able to respond to that as well. Do you find in your conversations with your clients, too, that there's a, a shifted mindset as well, that this data that they're accumulating at the, at the top level needs to filter down all the way to the store associate level so that it's informing the, um, the types of behaviors that they need to have for successful customer experiences in store. Yeah. And, you know, it's obviously, you know, it used to be that there'd be a different answer to that question if it was a chain versus a, a small retailer or mom and pop SMB. But what I love is that, you know, there is a democratization going on right now of the tool sets that have historically been reserved for the biggest retailers that have now become much more available to the small guys. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that because it's important for small businesses to compete, especially now with COVID. And one of, one great example of it is what you just said, right? Is store associates having access, you know, when someone walks in the door without having to fumble, without having to click six times to figure out where to get, you know, Melissa's, um, you know, recommendations to be able to have that happen as soon as she walks in the door with, of course, your permission. So right. there's no question. There's no question. It'll be a combination of sales associate driven, obviously for those people that enjoy having a salesperson, uh, but also self-serve. You know, you'll walk into a store and you'll get access to the information that you need and the experience without necessarily having to deal with the sales associate at all. For sure. No, absolutely. Um, well, this has been a fascinating conversation. 
um, a lot to digest, um, but all <laughs> exciting. I am very like I'm I'm I haven't been to an airport in a while, but I am looking forward to this Delta experience that you mentioned uh, one day yeah. soon, um, and maybe even the Melissa operating system. I don't know, but uh, I think it's all exciting. A- the possibilities of where retail can go to be in better service of it, of its customers, and at the end of the day, I think that's the main goal. And that's really the formula to success, not just sell products and services, but be in service of, of your customers. And data really allows you to do that. Absolutely. And that's why, our, that's why we're anchoring always. And it's been on a, on a personal level, you know, I think COVID has been, you know, the silver lining for me is eliminating the noise so we can get very clear on our vision. And candidly, you know, our focus around using data to improve people's lives, while it sounds a little bit corny, um, has been so helpful because it allows us to filter every decision against that backdrop. Um, What's best for the consumer, what's gonna help improve their lives. And I think the best is yet to come. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, for sharing your insights and and your approach and some really successful case study examples. Everyone, again, this was Jonathan Silver. He's the founder and CEO of Affinity Solutions. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure, Melissa. Thank you for having me. And I hope to see you again in a future podcast. Sounds good to me. 